Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, February the 9th, 2024. We often explore fact and fiction. Sometimes fact is odder than fiction. Sometimes fiction is odder than fact. They are intimately related. Yesterday, we did a, a show with a Thai-based journalist, Patrick Wynn. Uh, he has a new book out, Narcotopia. It's an interesting book about the Wa people of Southeast Asia. The subtitle of the book is In Search of the Asian Drug Cartel That Survived the CIA. Uh, Narcotopia is based in the so-called Golden Triangle of Southeast Asia, uh, that no man's land between Thailand, northern Laos, and Myanmar. And today, that, that's a fact book. Today, we're talking about a new work of fiction, a major work by one of uh, the world's leading thriller writers, Terry Hayes. It's his second book, The Year of the Locust. And like Narcotopia, it's based uh, in a no man's land where three countries collide, uh, share this area, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Terry is joining us from Houston, which is a long way, Terry, from <laughs> Pakistan, Afghanistan, and uh, Iran. What is it, Terry, about no man's land that make them interesting? Well, because it's, it's lawless, you know. <laughs> that, that, that was what interested me. It's a, it's a lawless um, environment. And, uh, you know, death can be pretty quick, can be very violent. And... Uh, Things like, well, in Narcotopia, you know, you have that similar thing of drug trafficking, gold smuggling, people smuggling, refugees, exploitation of people. The list goes on and on. There's no shortage of awful things that happen in no man's land. Another thing that ties you together with Narcotopia, uh, Terry, is that this is a book about how the, the Wa people of northern Myanmar survived the CIA, actually cleverly um, avoided the CIA in terms of the building of a, a narco-centric state. Your new book also features the CIA, perhaps a little bit more heroically. Tell me how the CIA fit into the Year of the Locust. Yeah, well, the, the hero of the Year of the Locust is a, what is called a denied access area spy. These are the people who are right at the pointy end of intelligence gathering. They are men and women who go into places like North Vietnam or Yemen. If I was writing it today, they'd probably be in Gaza, into the very, very worst areas of Russia, what are called the Zaytos, the, the forbidden cities, and in this case, Iran. So my spy, Kane highly experienced, pretty good with languages, very resourceful, um, goes into Iran to collect some information about what may well be a very devastating attack on the West. But, you know, it's a spy thriller, a very long spy thriller. So it wouldn't be very long if he got the information. So uh, yeah, We don't want to give away too much, Terry, no. because we want everyone to buy the book. Although, and it came out two days ago, and it's already got 5,000 reviews uh, the year of the Locust on Amazon. Uh, many 
many, probably every one of our listeners will be familiar with your first book, I Am a Pilgrim. It got 94,000 ratings on Amazon. Yeah. Um, so you know how to uh, you know how to get readers, Terry. Well, I don't know. Maybe I do. Maybe the publisher does. You know. <laughs> no, we all know we're all writers, Terry. We know the one thing publishers are not very good at is marketing. Well, some and some, you know, it's like movies. Very similar to movies. You know, if the product's good, I think the the publisher or the distributor in movies gets behind it. Um, you know, the biggest challenge I think you have as a writer is not just getting the words on on the page, but you've got to climb that wall of public indifference, and that's a really high wall. Uh, I I mean, people have so many other options apart from buying books you know it's not just movies it's video games it's restaurants it's on and on and on so to, you've got to do something that arrests people's attention um and you know i was fortunate with pilgrim that uh, that i managed to do that no it's not just fortune many are called terry if you were chosen you're certainly one of the chosen ones when it comes to figuring out things do a lot of people over the last day or two have been watching um Tucker Carlson's interview of Vladimir Putin on the new Carlson uh, online network. Mm -hmm. um, and in the interview, uh, Putin mocked Carlson for not apparently getting into the, the CIA. He trolled him, which is interesting. Um, <laughs> tell me a little bit about how hard or easy it is to get into the CIA and what might distinguish Tucker Carlson from your fictional hero, Kane. Um. I could be really rude. Well, but please, that's why, why I invited you on the show. <laughs> well, you know, there's two sorts of people in the world, I am told. There's those who want to be famous and there are those who want their work to be famous. The Kardashians want to be famous. Tucker Carlson is involved in the business of self-promotion um, and that is not a prerequisite or even desirable amongst somebody who wants to be a spy. A lot of the work in the CIA is, of course, very boring. Uh, the analysts sit around and analyze things. But there are a small group of people who are in deep cover in various embassies or other jobs around the world gathering intelligence. And then there are the denied access area spies. So it runs the gamut of it. It's a bit like, you know, you can be on the bench for uh, most of your career and some people have to go out there and really play hard and uh you know so tucker carlson is you know, you know has a function to fulfill in life i suppose but that would that would not yeah, include... terry you're in houston now you're the mob is gonna <laughs> no, attack I mean... your hotel i won't tell anyone where you are um <laughs> so what exactly is a denied access area spy is that an official term or is that one you made up no i wish i had made it up no no i'll take credit for it but no it, it's for real and um that, that is what they do they they go into areas where there's not going to be any help if you get caught there's no geneva convention there's no red cross delivering nice little packages for you there's no meeting your family you are in a very, very bad place. And there are generally no hostage swaps for this. There's no no prisoner swap or anything. In fact, you know, a, a 
in some instances, I am told, because it's very hard to get information about this, but in some instances, the United States government would deny that the person had any association with them whatsoever. So, you, you know, you really are out there on a limb and um, you've only got yourself to rely on. That appeals to some people. Um, it wouldn't appeal to me, but, um, yeah, thank God there are people that do it. This idea of a denied access spy, uh, it uh, or denied access area spy. I mean, how different is it from the world of the traditional uh, thriller spy, the the world of James Bond, the world of Ian Fleming? Is this something different, or of have the great spies, the heroic spies, always been denied access, even if we didn't have that kind of language fifty or sixty years ago? No, no. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe James Bond, but you know, that's about as realistic as Doctor No or Goldfinger. I mean, they were, you know, Frederick Forsyth changed the whole nature of the the spy genre, and and so did Jean Le Carre. They they write they wrote their books from a position of reality. Um, you know, in Forsyth's Day of the Jackal. I mean, that was really an attempt on the life of De Gaulle uh, from the Algerians. And, uh, you know, it had that same quality that the movie French Connection had. It, it had a documentary realism to, to it that was very uncommon or had never really been done like that before. So, you know, James Bond and a lot of the earlier iterations of Spies were just an excuse to have people do remarkable things to even more remarkable villains. Denied access area spies are working in the real world, in the real, real world. Now, most spies uh, work, you know, within, uh, in, undercover, but, you know, within the American, you know, diplomatic and embassy, you know, structure. So, you know, that they have quite a bit of support. You have a CIA station chief in most countries in the world, which is declared to the host nation. Everybody knows everybody's spying on each other. But this is in a very, very different category. So the trick was, or at least my version of the trick was, to take a, a lot of real events and weave them into a narrative and have this type of hero confront real things, real threats. And, uh, you know, he's not hopping into bed with, with pussy galore or something. The agency has always had, or well, the American Secret Service has always had an obsession with Iran. We all know the story of, many of us know the story of Kermit Roosevelt being flown in with a suitcase full of money to try and overthrow uh, Mossadegh. Is The Year of the Locust a book about Iran, essentially? No, no, no. It it's just uses Iran as a as a host for a new terrorist group, and you know, a, a, a combination between, I guess, ISIS and Al Qaeda, um, and that. So, it, the Badlands, you know, that that triangle of no man's land is an ideal place for them to operate. Uh, you know, I, I says it in the book. You know, after ISIS was, uh, you know, very heavily um, defeated, it. it it just became meditistic. 
it just split into a lot of different groups. You know, it says somewhere in Pilgrim that, you know, you can kill the man, but you can't kill the thought. And that is the situation with terrorism. Uh, you know, it keeps re-emerging in a different form with different leaderships, some more charismatic, some better funded, and all of those things. So Iran is a place where this can, um, can flourish. And, uh, you know, because the Iranians have a real army and a real air defense system, you know, America's not going in there to bomb, bomb them out like, say, they tried at Tora Bora and a few other places with, with Osama bin Laden. No, this is a much more difficult problem. So it just suited my purposes that Iran was, you know, the bete noir uh, of America at the moment, but it was a, a good place for the terrorists to hang out. You talked about the traditional thriller, the Fleming thriller of the good guy, the James Bond against evil. Is um, Year of the Locust, the Year of the Locust, is it a book about the good guys like Kane against the evil terrorists, or is it more complicated than that? Oh, it's more complicated than that. I mean, that was true of Pilgrim as well. You know, you, you can't just assert that's what you can, lots of novels do but it, i don't believe in just asserting that somebody is evil i mean you have to motivate them in pilgrim the the person who is trying to reinvent or re recreate smallpox saw his father when he was 12 years old publicly beheaded in in Jeddah in saudi so if that didn't set you on a path to revenge and anger and that uh, i don't know what would with uh in the year of the locust the the guy who is from the bleak midwinter they don't know his name but we learn his name he went through a pretty horrific event and uh like so many people he he converted to his religion and became more passionate about it than people that are born into it so he in both cases they these particular people were highly intelligent. They had the the resources and the ingenuity to fight. You know what's generally called an asymmetric war. They were they didn't have helicopter gunships. They didn't have aircraft carriers. My my two bad guys. But boy, were they smart. By pitching it up at that level, it means that my hero has to has to really rise to the occasion. So that's what interests me. I, I mean, they they are well, well, I think they are. The readership will make its own judgment, but, um, you know, they are well motivated. They are complex characters. And I think that gives them a dignity that, that the, you know, the force for evil in a lot of books doesn't get. You've written about writing epic stories when we think of epic stories we think of homer and traditional epic narratives epic literature mm -hmm. um is there something at least in your mind epic about the work you do or is that what your goal is to write epic stories yeah yeah why not Tolkien wrote epic stories. James Clavell wrote Shogun, and I thought that was epic. Uh, Tolstoy wrote Anna Karenina, and I thought that was the best manifestation of that period of history I've, I've ever read. Um, 
yeah, the yeah, you can go back to Homer or you go way back into, you know, the literary tradition. Um, but not many people read those things today. Um, that's, that's really the enclave of academia. Uh, lots of people read Pilgrim. <laughs> and yeah, it's my goal to write something big and sweeping. I find most books in this particular genre very narrow. And they're really quite dusty. They're, they're, they're really quite um, using tropes from decades ago. Not all of them, but many of them. And, you know, it, it, we know the rhythm of how they work and that's certainly not stretched out across the globe with major thematic issues of technology and of the nature of evil in the world. And I think in both of my heroes they are very uh morally conflicted people it's not for me to judge whether they're epic but at least that's the aim that's what i'm trying to do so moral conflict and and, and an epic quality they they go together well anything can go together <laughs> it's whether it works or not you know uh in my in my opinion it works otherwise i wouldn't have written it but if you haven't got moral conflict within a character, well, you know, he becomes a bit two-dimensional. Um, and I try to avoid that. I mean, the in Pilgrim, the, the lead character, the hero, I don't even know his name. He's had so many different names, but we call, I used to call at one occasion Scott Murdoch. Scott Murdoch posed an interesting question. He says, how much evil does a man have to do in order that good can result? And he knows, he knows that the stuff that he's doing is, you know, at least in one estimation, pretty morally reprehensible. Um, and he's aware of that. He's not stupid. Um, but that leads him to, to having a different view of the work that he does. At, at the end of the book, when he is, he's been successful, he, he's been broken. I mean, his spirit has been broken. He's been physically in really bad shape. And he's had to do some really terrible things in order to stop an epidemic being launched. The president gets him on a, on, on a phone. He's staying on a beach in Turkey. And um, the president gets him on the phone. And the president starts to say, look, I'd just like to say to you on behalf of the American people that you are a real, and he hangs up the phone. He's not interested. He's not interested at all. And he goes and gets on his boat and sails east, not really knowing where he's going. And the last words of the book are, he is risen. He is risen. Because it's a resurrection story. And, uh, yeah, you know, it does it work? I don't know. People seem to think it does. but right. As Terry, as you said, there are two kinds of people, those who take the calls from the president, like Tucker Carlson and those yeah. that don't. Yeah. Uh, we have the great fortune and honor to talk to one of the world's leading thriller writers, Terry Hayes. He's the author of I Am a Pilgrim, which everybody has read. And a new book out, uh, out a couple of days ago, has already got an obscene amount of reviews on Amazon. It's been out two days, already got 5,000 reviews on Amazon. The Year of the Locust, it's getting tremendous reviews all over the place. He's talking to us from Houston. I want to thank uh, our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, which in its own way is also epic. 
going to run a short feature on liberties and then we'll be back with terry to talk more about the new book we'll talk a little bit about taylor swift and we'll also talk <laughs> mad max so don't go away anyone <laughs> news the noise there is nuance insight liberties it's not just a journal of ideas it's a meteor of intelligent substance it's the place to be for engaged citizens politics opinion substance liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought a quarterly of urgency of cultural exploration of intellectual delight of immaculate prose it's invaluable subscribe now or find liberties at your favorite bookseller and you can subscribe to liberties at libertiesjournal.com all our guests get uh, complimentary annual subscriptions, including our guest today. If he can stay still, Terry Hayes seems like he lives on aircrafts. He travels all over the world. Terry, um, what's all this about Taylor Swift? What's oh, your yeah. connection with her? Were you somehow associated with this new movie Argyle? Yeah, well, not with the movie. Um, yeah, look, you know. Me and Taylor, we're very close. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, I bet Taylor's she's read. I bet she's read. I'm a pilgrim. I don't know. I hope she. I has. should hope so. I, um, if she hasn't, she's the only person probably left in the world who hasn't. Well, can she please take a copy of it to the Super Bowl and sit? Yeah, and wave it in the air. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Nicole Kidman did it for me, and uh, not at the Super Bowl, but she did a lot well, of that's other. That's pretty places. good. Yeah, well, you know, I know I've known Nicole since she was seventeen, so it's the least she could do. Um, yeah, well, what happened was that uh, a very good friend of mine, Matthew Vaughan, who directs the Kingsman movies, X Men, a whole lot of movies, he called me up and he said, uh, "I'm doing a new movie called Argyle, and it's about a spy novelist. It's a woman called Ellie Conway. It's going to be played by Bryce Dallas Howard." I said, "Oh, yeah, okay, sounds interesting." He said, "Well, I've got a really great idea." I said, "Yeah, what's that?" He said. Um, Ellie Conway, even though she's a fictional character, is in fact going to be make people believe that she's a real person and that she's a real spy novelist. And she's going to write a spy novel. It's not a novelizational movie. It's a standalone, outstanding spy novel. And I said, oh, yeah. He says, really meta, huh? So I had to race off and look up what meta meant. And then I came back and I said, Matthew, that's really the most meta idea I've ever heard. And he said, yeah, so I've decided that the world's best spy novelist should actually write this under the name of Ellie Conway. Now, that was when I knew that he was going to ask me, but there was no money involved. Because when they flatter you, when they start saying stuff like that, you know... This is Matthew Vaughan who, who made our guy on yeah. other films. Yeah, so you know, so I thought, oh, there's no money in this. This is this is you know what we call in Australia mates rates, which is nil. So um, I said, listen, Matthew. He said, so you're going to write. I said, listen, Matthew. I'm years late with the year of the locust. People are going to murder me if I take time off to do this. So we had a long discussion. He said, well, how are we going to do it? How can we do it? And I said, to him, well, look, firstly, I'll do it for nothing because we are friends and I don't want to get into negotiations with friends. I said, I will be involved, but I cannot take the time to sit down and craft the words. So we spoke to my publisher in England, a guy called Bill Scott Carr, very, very talented man. I told him the idea and he said to me, that's a really meta idea. 
And I said, oh, yeah, of course, everybody knows that. Meta, yeah. yeah. I, I said, oh, yeah, well, I, yeah, I realized that immediately. Is that what people say to each other these days? That's a meta idea? I don't know. The people I know do. So that <laughs> maybe I should improve my friends. Um, so anyway, he said, we came up with a plan that a woman called Tamara Cohen would do the words and I'd do the plotting. And we had Zoom meetings two or three times a week, Bill, Tamara and me, and I would sit there and say, why don't we do this? And Tammy, who writes differently to me, said, oh, Terry, for God's sake, that's so over the top. I said, that's the nicest thing anybody's ever said. And that's so... Yeah, you should have said that was a meta thing to say. <laughs> this is a meta interview, Terry, isn't it? Can it I is. claim a meta interview here? You, you please do. But the interesting thing, I haven't seen Argyle. I have to say, you probably noticed it's getting terrible reviews. But anyway, yes. um, it's about a novelist, uh, this Ellie Conway, who, who, who predicts, who, who becomes... Uh, valuable, shall we say, to secret services because she writes about the future without knowing it. Is there some truth to that? There's sometimes what you've written actually come out to turn out to be true. Um, well, COVID was pretty close to smallpox, and smallpox was what was being recreated in uh, in Pilgrim. And uh, I can tell you, COVID was a walk in the park to compared to what will happen when somebody does recreate smallpox, and they will, the technology exists, the the impetus to do it exists. My kids say to me, do you think it will happen? I said, yeah, sure, I do. And they said, aren't you scared? I said, no. And they said, why not? I said, because I warned everybody, I'm innocent in this. Um, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I... I was a journalist for a long time, foreign correspondent, political correspondent, lots of things, and my great thing in life is that I read a lot of newspapers. So I feel like I'm culturally aware. Um, and, you know, part of the trick of writing novels like these is to project into the future, but at the same time to make people feel that these things are familiar enough that they could happen. So it's a mixture of that. So, yeah, Ellie Conway, uh, you know. I, are you re were you responsible for the cat in that film? No, no. I, I hope you told them they shouldn't put a cat in it. No, I, I, I have dogs. Uh, the, the cat is actually Matthew Vaughan's cat. The they had a they had an acting <laughs> cat. They had an acting cat, and uh, because that was written into the script, I had nothing to do with the script. I might say, and that so they had an acting cat. And uh, first day on set with the acting cat, the cat wouldn't do anything, even though it was supposed to be highly trained. And Matthew said to the production manager, "How much are we paying this cat?" And the production manager said, well, it's 70,000 pounds. And Matthew said, what? Mm. And she said, yeah. More than, you got, more than you got. Well, yeah, you bet. Everybody was more than I got. And so he, he said, what? So he fired the cat. So the cat got fired. And he caught, he's married to Claudia Schiffer. The, the, the and he put the his own cat in. And he put his own cat in for free. Very sensible. A producer would like that type of director. He, he really, uh, that was a very good move. And they, it just so happened that his mat, his cat is a Scottish fold that has those folded down ears. Taylor Swift has a Scottish fold cat. Well, that was that. The internet got onto this and uh, a conspiracy theory was born. Taylor Swift wrote the book because it was kept secret, who actually did write it. And it's People... become, a, as, according to the Washington Post, an object of swifty speculation. Yes, that's right. So um, 
yeah, it was, um, so it all got a bit out of control. And then I uh, was interviewed by Inside Edition here in America. And uh, I walked into the room and the, the reporter said, but you're not Taylor Swift. I said, no, I'm Ellie Conway. And that, so those two things are about, <laughs> about as true as each other. The book, uh, you, you, I don't need to tell you, Terry, it took 10 years uh, on the internet. Some people suggested that it was never going to come, the year of the locust. Why did it take you so long? Or did you just have fun spending the money from uh, I Am A Pilgrim over the last 10 no, years? No, I'd, I'd made some money out of movies. Uh, no, I, um, I decided because I didn't like Hollywood uh, anymore. I didn't like what it would become. I didn't like working in Hollywood. I decided to write a novel. So I got 200 pages in and uh, too far into abandonment, not far enough to see the end. And uh, I was a migrant child. Only four of us went to Australia from England, just mum, dad, myself and my brother. No extended family, didn't know anybody that had no resources to ever go back to England. So we were marooned. Where were you? Where was it? Sussex in England? Yeah, yeah, down, down near Brighton, you know, on the outskirts of Brighton, a small town. And that, and uh, anyway, so I'm plowing away on I Am Pilgrim. And yeah, I'd had this lifelong dream to write a well received novel that sold well around the world. That had always been my objective. And I was having a go at it. My brother arrived at the house unannounced. This was down in Australia and told me he had cancer and that the doctors had given him six months to a year. Well, they got that part right. It was down the lower end. Uh, a few months later, I had the um, unpleasant duty of standing in a hospital corridor. My father was quite elderly and uh, the doctors telling me that he was in a lot of pain and he was suffering all, uh, multiple organ failure. So, I had to give the authorization for them to discontinue life support. I sat with dad. Then five months later, my mother died. So within the space of a year, the three other people who knew about this little boy who wanted to be a novelist were all gone. And uh, I couldn't stop doing my work. I had to get up every morning and dig ditch. There was no time for mourning. There was no time to address all of those issues. So I finished Pilgrim. I got a call from the British publisher and he told me it's going to be huge. It is going to be huge. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he talked about why he believed that, you know, it was just going on release and uh, that they were hearing back from the booksellers, hearing back from lots of people. And he said to me, finally, you don't sound very happy. I said, no, 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 I'm happy. I'm, yeah, of course I am. I'm blessed that, that this may be the case. Uh, and I didn't tell him why. I, I, I have never spoken of it until I came on this American book tour and everybody like myself is saying, why did it take this so long? So anyway, I, um, I had a lot of issues to deal with. You know, it was a very difficult time. But I had four children under the age of six. And uh, the death of my, my only brother and my parents uh, gave me a very, you know, concentrated the mind on my own childhood, which was not very happy. My, my mother was not a psychologically well person. I think she did her best, but it wasn't quite what we needed. And so I looked at my own kids and I thought, well, there's one thing I can do. I can always write another book. I'll never get these years back. So I started Locust. But I never missed a cricket match. I never missed a horse riding lesson. I never missed a performance of a Latin. I paid my dues. 
every day and I would work and I would uh, help with the kids and try to guide them and uh, I don't regret a minute of it and as, as for all the people on the the internet who are saying that I broke trust because I took so long, I can tell them one thing, I had a really, really great career as a foreign correspondent and a journalist. I've made a few movies which I think are really pretty good. I've written two books that I'm immensely proud of and the thing that I value most is what I did with my children and nobody's ever going to take that away from me and uh, they can uh, wait for the next book. I won't have to go through that again, I hope. Finally, Terry, as you said, you before you, you wrote movies, you did Mad Max, a number of other very successful movies. You suggested earlier that you were a little cynical about the movie business. What's gone wrong with movies? And I'm guessing that this book will be eventually turned into a movie, won't it? Yeah, I think it, I think Locus will go to streaming. Uh, Pilgrim will be made probably next year as as a movie. That will I, I'm virtually certain that was much as you can be in Hollywood that that will happen. Oh, what went wrong was you know the budgets got too big, the the price of going to the movies got too high. The people that are running the studios are not passionate storytellers. That people who failed at Wall Street or decided Wall Street being a hedge fund manager was really too boring for words, and that they would go to Hollywood. And of course, most of the not all of them, but most of the people that work at the studios are looking at like generals. Generals are always fighting the last war. They're always trying to reinvent the last hit movie. So I can promise you this, there is not a toy in the world that is not being developed as a movie, given the success of Barbie. They're, it, it, they're, we're going to be inundated by this and none of them will work because the audience has already had that experience. Yeah, they got even a, I read a Hot Wheels one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, why, why not? I mean, look, you, you, you can make Pirates of the Caribbean, which Johnny Depp, I think, did a great job on. But it, it, it's a ride at Disneyland. And that, so if we look back at the movies, they were involved in in doing things, not all of them, but many of them were involved in social issues. They were involved in exciting events of the world. Three Mile Island comes to mind, Casablanca. We can go on and on and on. Well, now, you know, we don't have so many movies like that. And I think the audience has found, a uh, person was telling me the other day, he took his family to the movies, uh, bought the tickets, bought the over price concessions, parked the car, and it cost him nearly $200. Well, you know, it used to be the Nickelodeon, didn't it? <laughs> it used to be cheap and dirty. And you know, though, this year has been a good year. I've seen all the Oscar, and there's a lot of good films, uh, yeah. including some literary ones like Zone of Interest. Finally, Terry, who's going to play Kane uh, in the movie? Who would you like? Not uh, Taylor Swift, of course. What oh, about her boyfriend, the no. bearded fellow on the American football team? No, no. I, if Who's going to be Kane, Terry? I'd say Christian Bale. Christian I, Bale, is he watching? I don't know, but he's a great actor. I did a movie with him, and uh, he's a really good guy and a great actor. I think he, he and Daniel Day-Lewis are probably the two actors of, the gen, of their generation. And so, I don't know. 
That would be my choice, but, you know, it'll end up being Steven Seagal, won't it? 